This is Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. Let's talk about what's going on in America today. The rise in mass shootings is a little bit unsettling. Actually, it's a lot unsettling. But what I'm interested in is the fact that even though the victims seem to be extremely random, in most cases, the act of violence is very, very simultaneously. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to start that over. Sometimes I start to make up my own words. No, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> okay. So although the victims are extremely random in most cases, the act of violence is rarely spontaneous. So what's going on? You know, so 70% of mass shooters are white, mostly poor white. And I think we should dig really a little, just a little bit deeper into this subject because while everyone is talking about, you know, um, this is a racist thing, I don't think that's what it is. I really don't. I think that there are elements of, of that that may be sprinkled throughout, but I think we're looking at something deeper. So according to the Gateway Foundation, from the early 2000s, the number of substance, uh, uh, substance use related to deaths in rural uh, communities is on the rise. Rural communities make up about 97% of America's land area, yet less than 20% of the population live in these smaller communities. So why are we seeing a rise in violent crimes? I think the media has a lot to do with this. And, and I have to ask myself, what are we missing? And there's some questions that I typically ask myself when I'm looking at this subject. Number one, are we shaping a narrative around an entire society of people based on the color of their skin? And that sounds very familiar, right? Because we talk about that a lot when it comes to racial issues or racial diversity. But I feel like that's exactly what we're doing in this situation. Um, have we erased poor whites from the list of people that we should be concerned about? Um, I asked myself, you know, have we asked ourselves about representation regarding poor white communities? And when I turn on the TV... I see depictions of poor societies and poor stereotypes. And a lot of times I see a lot of blanket narratives. So it caused me to think about my own experience. So as a black woman in America, I hear everything from black girl magic to black love to black excellence. And it just never ends. Everything is always black this, black that. But it's always positive things. And when I ask someone in my community, why is this necessary? I'm told because young black people need to see a positive image of themselves personified. Okay, so I do agree with that, but I couldn't help but ask myself if this method only worked for black communities because that's the way it seems. And so are we advocating or why aren't we advocating for positive images of poor white people or just white people in general that's in rural communities? So I came to one conclusion. I think we've created a community of forgotten people. I don't think, you know, so let's start here. So I didn't grow up watching the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> but if you did, um, or if you didn't, just, you know, go to YouTube, a simple YouTube search, you can find it. But the show depicted poor whites who hit the lottery, moved to Beverly Hills. And while it was a bit of a comedy, there was also images of family, unity. It showed a positive image of rural communities and rural white people. It showed an image of people who had experienced struggle and had challenges, but were still united. So today, I struggle to find a show that doesn't highlight childhood trauma, drug addiction, or all the other anxieties associated with this community, considering the fact that the number of drug overdose deaths have risen to about 10%, in, or actually it's higher than 10% in rural areas. And adults in rural areas have a higher rate of usage of tobacco, alcohol, um, they have addictions to heroin, prescription drugs, 
And these are the things that we typically see not just happening in the community, but it's also being portrayed on TV and in other media sources. While I hear white elites tell poor white people that they shouldn't be poor because their skin provides them with a privilege that they should use to change their lives. That's just so bizarre to me. So let me tell you what you get when you say to a segment of the population who struggles financially and who's faced with horrific circumstances that they're privileged. You get feelings of unfair competition combined with white reproduction rates dropping. And then you add a little bit of the replacement theory in there. And you throw all that into the pot and then you season it with critical issues in the community like addiction and single parent home, rising mortality rates, the lack of resources and social capital. And it's this deep sense of homelessness. That is a recipe for disaster. And in some cases, you'll get a mass shooting. Ignoring what these people are facing creates a black hole of desolation and it manifests into anger. So no, I'm not excusing bad behavior. I'm simply highlighting the root cause of the behavior. So there's a guy named J.D. Vance who is running for U.S. Senate. And at this time of recording, he's running. Um, But who is he? He's the author of Hillbilly Elegy, which became a Netflix movie. But he grew up in a poor rural community. The movie is actually about his life. One of the things he said that stuck out to me was that he said, I didn't know that I had to go to law school to become a lawyer. Now, he became a lawyer, but growing up in his community, he hadn't seen any images of that. He hadn't talked to him. His family members were not lawyers. So he had to literally find out everything on his own. There weren't too many resources available, which we'll get into later. So I believe it's safe to say that we've dropped the ball as a society if we're ignoring a complete segment of the population. Pretending people don't exist while expecting them to live off of nothing in the shadows of America is enough to make even the most upstanding person act out. But there's hope. So I truly believe that opportunity is for everyone. But we do have a segment of the population that sees upward mobility as a geographic privilege that isn't afforded to them. In our communities, you'll find that some of the most you'll you'll find some of the most loving, hardworking people. In rural communities, you'll also find some of the most hardworking, loving, family-oriented people that you'll ever meet. So I live in Georgia, and right here in Georgia, um, you know, when my husband Kelvin was running for office, we visited every single county, all 159. We walked into small businesses across the state, and we left with our hands full of honey, T-shirts, food, and sometimes a little bit of bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) We felt like we were at home. But under all of the gifts, the smiles, and the Southern charm, there were a lot of emotions of pain and concern. So many fight the stigma of racism in these communities and being told that they're racist because they may have a Southern drawl, which I actually happen to like. But (laughs) the same way I fight the stigma of being told that I should be late all the time. If you don't understand that, you'll get it later. So generalizing people is detrimental to a society. It hampers one's ability to make a name for themselves because they're so busy trying to fight and overcome the stigma that we place on them. But how do we change this narrative? How do we address this? I think it's time we talk about it. So to dive deeper into the subject, I'm with Tug Cowart. Tug is uh, Georgia born and raised. 
Originally, he's from Dalton, Georgia, but now he lives in Alpharetta with his beautiful wife, Laura, and his son, Jacob. So his family and family members attend um, Premier Church. I'm mean, sorry, Perimeter. Perimeter. Sorry, Perimeter Church in Johns Creek. And he served four years in the United States Navy. Thank you for your service. My pleasure. And uh, he's a strong advocate and supporter of men and women in uniform. He's very proud of the state of Georgia. He's been on the radio for 22 years, 15 years in the Atlanta market. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's been uh, <laughs> it's been a fun ride for sure. And uh, it, it, I remember the first time I told my dad that uh, mm. that I wasn't going to work in the carpet mills in Dalton, Georgia, because that's mm. I mean, there's so yeah. many people. That's what most everybody does. It's a very very uh, blue collar, mm-hmm. uh, low income. There's there's mm-hmm. not a lot of wealth there unless you own the carpet mills, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember telling my dad I wasn't going to work in the carpet mills, and he was like, well, "What are you going to do?" Like he just mm. he had a hard time wrapping his head around. I was like, "What what, there, what else? What else is there?" And, and um, I said, I don't know, but it's not going to be that. And wow. and um, and then shortly after that, I came home and said, Hey, I've, I've joined the Navy. And they're like, Yeah, let's let's talk about it. My grandfather, both grandfathers were uh, World War II veterans, and I said, Well, there's there's no time to talk. I've already mm-hmm. I'm literally leaving in two months. I, I leave tw- December twentieth, nineteen ninety five. <laughs> that five days before Christmas. So you you jumped on it really quick. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I I. My, so I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. I I was going to Dalton State College, and my parents couldn't afford to pay for it. Mm. I I mean I was working a little part time job, you know, just graduated high school and, and going to college. They literally opened up a credit card account to pay for my first semester of school. They opened mm. one, and I knew that they couldn't afford it. And in my head, I didn't want to go to Dalton State College. I wanted to get away from Dalton. I knew I I knew I wanted to leave. It'll always be home. I love it, but I didn't want to be there. And I definitely didn't want to go to school there. So knowing that they couldn't afford it and I wasn't happy there and I wasn't going to excel there and I wasn't going to put my best effort forward, I joined the Navy because mm-hmm. I couldn't – in in my own head, I couldn't justify wasting their hard effort mm. and and the interest that they were going to pay on a credit card right. for me to go to college. But that was what they were willing to do. Interesting. Yeah. So when I was in high school, my guidance counselor gave me a stack of scholarships that I could get because I was black. Mm, wow. And because we were in a low, I was my family was low income as well. Sure. So they were like, you know what, your family can't afford college. So here is a stack of uh, potential scholarships that you can go after. Wow that pertain to me being a minority, mm-hmm. things like that. Did you get that? No, I didn't. No, <laughs> it was funny. I did I mean, I knew there were scholarships available. I had no idea. My mom, uh, I, I still call her mama. Yeah, my mama. She had heard through a friend because my dad was in poor health that there was a, a Pell Grant or something, mm-hmm. but we didn't really know how to, to uncover that. Mm-hmm. And so... I remember trying to figure it out a little bit, but I didn't know enough about it. And I was like, what is this? I don't even know what they're talking about, really. And so I didn't spend that much time with Mm -hmm. it. And so, no. But no, no one ever said there's There's ways ways for you to go to to college. No. I'm not surprised. And um, but I I do find it deeply. it's, It's sad. Right. Because we're talking about, like I said, a segment of the population that. Is that needs assistance when it comes to and when I say assistance, I'm not necessarily talking about entitlements because the people I've met Mm -hmm. when I was traveling throughout rural Georgia, Mm -hmm. the last thing they wanted was handouts. A handout. No, that's right. Yeah, because there is a certain pride of Mm -hmm. of being able to take care of yourself and and to work hard and the fruits of your labor 
pay off. Right. And and I think a lot of people, especially in rural communities, that mm-hmm. because that's that's the only thing I've ever known, right? Yeah. Especially in farming communities and places mm-hmm. like Dalton. Again, it is it's an industri- industry with mm-hmm. with the carpet industry, but they work their fingers to the bone yeah. and twelve hour shifts and mm-hmm. and not a lot to show for it. Yeah. yeah. And and, not, and I'm not. It's because I don't I don't say that in a in a derogatory way. Mm-hmm. I just know what I know what happens there, and that happens to white, black, Hispanic because everybody works together. Everybody yeah. kind of, and it's funny though the at least when I was growing up, there was still a little bit of a um, there was a, a it literally they called it the white wreck, and then the black wreck. Mm-hmm. And during the basketball scene, I loved basketball. And I was I was a decent basketball player, not a great basketball player, but I wanted to continue playing. So I literally went to the Black Rec. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> you know, they're like I know there's because we were definitely playing. Yeah, yeah it was, you're exactly right. <laughs> and you know what? But mm-hmm. I was it was it was funny because when I first went over there, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to fit in. Mm-hmm. And most everybody was so welcoming and kind, yeah. and they're like, "Get in here!" I mean, they'd be like, "Get in here, white boy!" <laughs> you know, and 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 we would play, and we had so much fun, but. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed. To, I knew yeah. what. Yeah. I knew what that community was, and mm-hmm. it was on Frederick Street, Frederick Street in Dalton. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to go there to play because I'd Good. never been told that. I had no idea. Well, that's another stigma, right? Is that everyone is particularly white people who are born in rural communities are taught to be racist, mm-hmm. and that's just not the case. He's without a doubt. It's so funny because. Mm-hmm. My mom and daddy didn't have much, and I lost my dad about three years ago. And man, that's the hardest thing that I've ever lived through. But mm-hmm. uh, and and still struggle with it today. I miss him so badly because mm-hmm. of the wisdom. And and now I still have mama, and and, and she's always she's always talked to me about those things. Mm-hmm. She's she always said you always treat everybody the way you want to be treated. I mean, this is the golden rule, right? And yep. because we grew up in church and we grew up, that meant more to her. Teaching, teaching that meant more to her than living in a mansion, you know, because she wanted to pass on those values. And Mm -hmm. we always talked about treating people the right way and doing right by people. Mm -hmm. And they will always do right by you. And you know what? I've found that to be the case. And even in the Navy, which is very diverse, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I met people from all over the world that I served with, but then people that that I met through service and being in a different country mm-hmm. and I realized how similar people are, but at the same time, very different. Yeah. But all in all, we all want the same thing. We want to be able to take care of our families. We want to see our families do well. We want to do well for ourselves. Now, does that happen? That's a different story altogether. I mean, it, there's all kinds of circumstances that that say that that would yeah. allow that or or keep that from happening. Right. But uh, but I but I found that mm-hmm. that everybody is so very similar. And yes, I, I'll give you an example quickly. Is when I was in Malta, which is an island off the coast of Sicily, mm-hmm. which is off the coast of Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I met this guy. He was in the Maltese Navy, and we just hit it off, man. We just—he was just a cool guy, and he was mm-hmm. like, "You should come have dinner with my family tonight." And I was like, "That'd be awesome, thank you." <laughs> and and they were so kind. And though the customs were slightly different, it was just like sitting around my mom and daddy's table, and right. it was that that same feeling of being invited and being a part and always feeling welcome. Mm-hmm. And and I was there for two weeks and went back probably for dinner, like. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. A lifetime of hard work 
children laughing in the kitchen, family photos on a restaurant wall, a legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation, like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Three times. You're well, listening I mean, to Let's Talk About here. It mm-hmm. with Janelle King. Okay, so King. I have to ask, when you hear the term hillbilly, what comes to mind? I love that one. To be honest, mm. I really do, because I was born in the hills of North Georgia. Okay. And, and I know it's a lot, oftentimes used derogatory, but I almost mm. embrace it because of that. Okay. And so I, I even call myself a hillbilly all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one that I struggle with, to be honest, and mm. it's funny, working country radio for 20 plus years now, rednecks almost embraced a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that irritates me the most, mm. because that's the one that I find so derogatory. Yeah. And and it's different. You know, I, I would imagine there's all kinds of names that, that some bother people, some, you know, they bother some person and then they won't others. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, Hillbilly, I embrace. Redneck's yeah. the one I don't like. Because I think, I think minority community, particularly my community, has, has um, hijacked the term redneck and made it something racist. When, in fact, that when I think about it and what I was told, because I had parents who actually gave me correct information, but... Um, it, it really means that you're working hard. You're working in the and your field. neck is red yeah, your because you're hot. Because you got a hat on, and <laughs> right. the only thing that's exposed is, is the, your is neck. That, you're exactly right. That's, yeah, I mean that's what I was told, and so and I looked at that like, okay, that means these are hardworking people, yeah, right? Um, but that's interesting. So, growing up in the mountains, I, I hear the term mountain people mm-hmm. too. Yeah, can you explain what that is or what that means? Yeah, I mean. It, it's just that people that that <laughs> were born and raised in the mountains, you know, mm-hmm. Appalachians, yeah. especially that, you know, and and that still happens. You know, there, there's so much poverty in the Appalachians, yes. especially in in Kentucky and in rural West Virginia, mm-hmm. and those people are literally left behind. If yes. you want to talk about a, a community that has no one advocating for them mm-hmm. at all ever, mm-hmm. it's them, and. And so that when, when mm-hmm. I think mountain people, that's exactly what I think of okay. people that have been left behind. Me too. Even even though, you know, like the, the, one of my uh, co-hosts on the Morning Extra, Scott Rhino here mm-hmm. in, in Atlanta, mm-hmm. he lives in Towns County. He's from New York, but mm-hmm. he lives in Towns County. And I even goof with him that he's a mountain boy. He calls himself <laughs> a you know new son of the south, and he lives he lives in the mountains up there. And he talks about it, how how sweet those people are, and much mm-hmm. the description yeah. you were talking about when you were traveling the state of Georgia, mm-hmm. but. But mountain people there, I, I think there's probably quite a bit of poverty in those yes. um, in those mountain and, and rural areas too. Mm-hmm. But usually, when I hear mountain people, I automatically think impoverished uh, people in Appalachia. You know what's interesting? You're you're so correct because I can guarantee that someone that's listening or that will be listening um, have never heard that term. Mountain people, or don't know yeah, that mountain people exist, right? right? Yeah. And and I I think it's a I mean I, again I don't see things the way some people see it well, because the, I like well, to the, dig deeper. Well, the, the, the painted picture that's that's <laughs> right. out there, the what the what whatever you pull up on whatever website uh-huh. that you've you know that you've typed into a mm-hmm. web browser that that is always stacked up fifteen pages deep yeah. before you could probably get to the actual. Let me tell you how factual that is. So when I was writing my monologue, I said, let me look up some stats. Mm-hmm. And I just typed in, you know, statistics concerning poor white Americans. I could not find anything. 
Like when I say it, it everything that popped up was what's happening in poverty. It, it was poverty and minorities, mm-hmm. right? And I, I mean, it was so hard to just find it, even on DuckDuckGo. I mean, it was yeah. so hard to find stats pertaining to poor white Americans and. It's because it's not talked about, so there's, right. there's, it's not indexed anywhere. Exactly. It's like, it's like you know what? We're not going to talk about them. They're privileged, so whatever. And it's so far from the truth. It's so far from. The truth. One of my best friends grew up in a poor white community, mm-hmm. and she tells me all the time how she gets mistaken for privilege because she's decided to work hard and mm-hmm. made something of herself. Can I can I tell you something I heard the other day, mm-hmm. and it is the Smithsonian. Um, the Smithsonian Museum and their the the wing the African American History Wing of the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. they in that in that whomever runs it and I don't I don't know the answer to that question but they have deemed hard work and um, I forget what the other term was but mm-hmm. but hard work and mm, doesn't matter hard mm-hmm. work was deemed as a white quality not an American quality oh my god I was blown away by that that's so insulting because, because I know how hard you work Absolutely. I know how hard your, your your husband Kelvin works is just being uh, oh it's so w- embarrassing I, but it, but it just you, cause, and you referenced it. What made me actually think of that and, and get mm-hmm. back to it is when you talked about being on time. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I have heard some, uh, and it's almost like I, I don't feel even comfortable saying it. <laughs> About CP time? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I know. But but I, I always know. hear it from people of color. You know, I know. Black we make a joke. And yes, I'm like, right. this is not a joke. Being on time is a, is a, is a, a, a characteristic of someone who is in control of their life. And who understands that they have to be somewhere. That means they're doing something. It's a sign of you being a doer, yeah, in my opinion. Right. But but so the fact that that would be mm-hmm. painted as a, a quality of any race. I know. Instead of quality, so a, a quality of someone who realizes the way mm-hmm. you've just laid it out, the importance of not mm-hmm. wasting someone else's time. Right. That you that you've decided to meet with or mm-hmm. have have some sort of business with. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that that is. It, that 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 yeah. could be secured by one race of all things to say it's only one race that is able to do that is that's yeah, racist really in and of crazy. itself and what's so crazy about it is that I, it's not like I struggle with being on time right I mm-hmm. actually struggle with not being on time mm-hmm. so what, what I mean by that is I, I I am like one of those people where you get there 10 minutes early <laughs> right I am a 10 minute early person yeah. I am I, and and the reason why is for two reasons one I get extreme anxiety when I'm running behind. And then secondly, when I'm when I feel that anxiety, I make mistakes. The, we car, all the only car accident I got in it was because trying to get somewhere. Late. We all uh, so that is <laughs> such a human trait. Human trait. You beat me right? to it. That's such a human trait. Of course, we trait. all feel that way, and um, and caring about you know someone else's time that that you're that you're mm-hmm. going to be uh, dealing with. I I just think that's a just a trait of respect for that person that you're going to be working with, dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just, so. It's, Anyway. Let's let's talk about upward mobility. Sure. Do you believe that it's distributed geographically, or do you feel like upward mobility is for everyone? I, look, in in certainly in, we're talking about people in the mountains. I don't know that they have or feel like that there's upward mobility at all. My yeah. parents, for me, again, I grew up in Dalton, which is an is an industry town, but it is at the foothills of the Appalachians, and 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 you can hear by the way I talk that there's certainly a, a heavy influence of it there, mm-hmm. but. My, I remember mom and daddy telling me they were just like, you have to go to college. We didn't. 
they both were mm-hmm. dropped out in seventh and eighth grade to work and, and, and earn money for the family because the mm-hmm. family was very, very poor. Mm-hmm. And so they just said the only way you're going to get anywhere is if mm-hmm. you get into college and you make something of yourself. Otherwise, you'll be here working in a carpet mill for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. Yeah. So upward mobility, I think it, it, it's definitely a thing in inside cities. Yeah. In in rural areas, I think it's more of that dream of how do we get out of here? And, you know, it's interesting because if you don't have, like, for instance, that that packet of scholarships that I oh, got. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and your parents were going to take out a credit card. That means they would have to have the credit to yeah. do it. Yeah. Number one, mm-hmm. which is probably not the case in a lot of situations. Most often. not. So it's almost like, you know, to say that, you know, like in my community where they say the white man's holding you back. Well, we know they're not Appalachian or mountain people or hillbillies is holding us back. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah. Yeah. because they, they don't, don't have time to they hold have, us back. Because they, right? they, they got to get to work. <laughs> they, and they, they can't dealing be late. with their own hurdles. And they can't be. They're talking and about being late. late. <laughs> Literally, I, there was there was some sort of punishment. And I don't know. And so I won't I won't say what the punishment was. But mm-hmm. I remember it being like if you were five minutes late, you got docked for 30 minutes or I, it was something yeah, like that. Okay. So you, I just remember mama and daddy always saying we cannot be late. Mm. We can't we can't afford to be late yeah. because we we're going to lose more than the five minutes of, mm-hmm. of time. It would, you know, it was a, whatever the block was. And, and maybe that wasn't it, but it was something. I've like never that. worked a job that had that requirement. And um, I don't know anyone that I know who has, right? Can you imagine so, the anxiety I mean, <laughs> of being late, though? Right, exactly. And that's well, for anybody. Maybe that's why. Maybe yeah. that's why CP time is yeah. a real thing to some people. Maybe. But, um, <laughs> and for those who don't know, CP time is color people time. Yeah. But that's a whole other conversation. We'll get into that at some point. Okay, so during a TED Talk that J.D. Vance was doing, right, mm-hmm. I really like to hear him talk about this subject because it's so personal to him. He mentioned a that there was a misconception in poor, predominantly white communities that affirmative action is seen as a tool to hold them back. Um, now, I'm someone who is completely against affirmative action, mm-hmm. and that will be on the Opportunity versus Equity episode. Right. Why? Um, but are you familiar with this? idea did you hear of this growing course, up of course really? absolutely yeah mm-hmm. it, it, it and, I, and it wasn't discussed it wasn't yeah. anything that you discussed around the dinner table mm-hmm. but you just kind of understood it it was mm-hmm. like okay we've got to make sure that you don't have an opportunity so somebody else can mm-hmm. that was always that was always the understanding yeah it was i mean that's the way it, i mean can we argue that that's not it i mean that is that's exactly how it sounds right mm-hmm. because when you say that you know we're reserving this space for people who can't afford to go to college right mm-hmm. but then we narrow it down to minority only mm-hmm. we completely cut out a large group of people but look at harvard what harvard's doing to asian people I mean, Harvard at this point, so there's actually a lawsuit. Uh, Asian Mm -hmm. people are suing uh, a lot of Ivies, but Harvard specifically Mm -hmm. for uh, they're they're trying to reduce the amount of who are allowed into the school. And I don't have all the details in front of me, so I don't want to speak. I can't even speak really intelligently mm-hmm. to it right in this moment. Mm-hmm. But if you look it up, yeah, it's it's about basically Harvard and the Ivy saying there's too many Asian people mm-hmm. that are passing the tests and meeting the rigor to get into Harvard. So we have to back that number off. That's see. OK, this is why meritocracy is key. Right. Mm-hmm. This is why we, we need to make sure that we are creating a space for people who do well in school, who put the effort in and we give it to them. 
because then you don't have to worry about it. When we were when we were talking to some students at Mercer College, they said yeah, meritocracy. It, yeah, they said meritocracy is diversity, mm-hmm. and I thought that was so true mm-hmm. because you're gonna naturally have a diverse right. outcome right. if you have meritocracy, right? So, do you think that um, we've put a face on poverty? Because I feel like my, when you think of poverty, you think of minorities. 100%. Yes, we do. How do yeah. we fix that? I wish I knew the answer. I don't know because mm-hmm. especially, we talked about this before we started recording, in the city of Atlanta, minorities do very, very well. There's so many minority-owned companies and there's so many very, very successful minority people. Maybe that's not mm-hmm. e- like it is everywhere, but mm-hmm. growing up close to here, I just thought minorities did really well like mm-hmm. everybody else did yeah. really well. But but w- going back to the to the search that mm-hmm. you did when you were trying to do research for this show, mm-hmm. if you look up any sort of poverty, it is always people of color that mm-hmm. are in that in that category. And look, th- there there is an element of people of color that do have those mm-hmm. struggles. It just isn't limited to them, right? I mean, even though there is a, a it's a smaller population of people who are in poverty that are white. But it's also a bigger pool, but, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. So it actually so kind of balances out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think it's right around 9% or 10%. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of people when, in the grand scheme the, of things, right? When you look right? at the total number of people yeah. involved, yeah. I mean, that's not to negate the fact that, yes, minorities are absolutely. in poverty a lot more. But in comparison to our, 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 our total population. But at the same time... Um, what to to say that you shouldn't? I think that's the big thing, right? Is that I, I remember I was with someone and uh, a homeless guy walked up and asked for some money, and it was a white homeless man. And the person I was with was black, and they said, um, you know, I don't give money to to homeless white people because mm. you know they shouldn't be in that position. Mm. And I thought wow. I was like, on, I. And now, now, so I have, I, I told you about my aunt and I can't remember if it was, it was before we started the show or not, but I have an yeah. aunt that, um, she had some mental issues. She was the first mm-hmm. person to graduate college in, in our entire family mm. and then struggled with mental instability and mental issues, um, mental mm-hmm. health issues. And I think probably it was punctuated by drug use too. Yeah. I think there was some of that in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, she was homeless for uh, probably the last 10 years from my until I went in the Navy. So from 10 years old to, mm. I don't know, 20 years old or, or wow. 18 or somewhere around in there, she was homeless. And and it was not because she didn't have a place to live. Mm-hmm. She could stay with my grandmother anytime she wanted, but she didn't want to. And, mm-hmm. and I wish I could explain why. I don't know. Yeah. But my mama would go and look for her on the streets and mm. try to get her into the car and take her back to either our house or my grandmother's house or wherever. Wow. And that mental instability mm-hmm. wouldn't allow it. And yeah. she would she would yell and scream and cuss at my mom. And this is my mom's sister, her yeah. youngest sister. The first person to graduate college. And, and it was two years of college, but still first person, which mm-hmm. to my family was a huge deal. They yeah. were like, wow, this is incredible. Wow, she's done something remarkable because most of my family dropped out in eighth grade to work you know wow. for the family mm-hmm. and um and so yeah with her situation it, mm-hmm. it was it was, it was so terrible. and we couldn't and we couldn't get help for her at wow. all i mean zero help so you couldn't type in and say you know a poor a poor i'm poor i'm <laughs> yeah. white yeah. i should be able to get some type of subsidy yeah. like can I, I can do as a can, black person can i help my aunt who's living on the street can we help her get a section eight home or wow. or and because in yeah. Dalton there's Section Eight housing, yeah, and we never could, we never could, and literally, it wasn't until about maybe six years ago that they finally got her mm-hmm. into a full on facility, like 
the things that happened leading up to that yeah. are so horrible that, that it, we wouldn't even have time to go through all of it. But I will tell you that she, her legs, she's missing her legs now. They had to be amputated. Mm. Um, they found her um, passed out, knocked out, whatever, wow. and, and about to die in a Pizza Hut bathroom oh. in, in Dalton, Georgia, where I'm from. Mm. And ultimately... We didn't. We weren't sure even at that point it was going to happen, but it finally did. But it took. I mean, she's almost you know fifty five now, fifty six, probably late fifties now, mm-hmm. and she's been dealing with this her yeah. entire life. You know what? I, it's just something I want to get on record because it, it was new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched this Netflix documentary. Actually, it was a docu series. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry, it was Hulu mm-hmm. docu series, and it was called um, Dope Sick. Okay, and it it, out, it it pretty much outlined from beginning to end the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. It's particularly Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. And to watch what... Ha- so what I didn't know, because this was my assumption. My assumption was that, you know, yes, you know, Oxy, they, they, they told them that it wasn't addictive. And it was. but And it absolutely was. But then when people felt addiction, they were like, oh, I kind of like it, so I'm going to keep taking it. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. This show showed me that what was happening is these people were going back to their doctors and saying, hey, I feel like it's not working anymore. Mm-hmm. This this milligram, so they, the dosage, so they increased the dosage. Which increased the, well, the What made it even worse yeah, right. is that when people started showing signs of addiction, they came up with this term called pseudo-addiction, mm-hmm. right, out of nowhere. And right. then they got these therapists to back it Pay them the back it, right? Money. I'm showing the money. Saying it's all money. It's all money. Well, <laughs> Tucker Carlson. These people were like getting. This. Oh, but, but before you say that, when, when they told the doctor that they had pseudo addiction, mm-hmm. the doctor's, I mean, the, the therapist's recommendation was to up their dosage. Yeah, it's a great recommendation. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm no doctor, but right. I think I could have gotten that one wrong. This it's is insane. a terrible idea. It is. Tucker Carlson, a, a few nights ago, had a uh, he, he opened his show talking about the fentanyl crisis that we're facing in, in the United States. And he also talked about a Pfizer drug that was marketed as an anti-depression drug mm-hmm. from 1991 through, I don't know, maybe 2021, 2020, somewhere around in there. Mm-hmm. And it was basically people who were taking it, who were supposed to lose that that depression, were actually more depressed and had a higher suicide rate than people of de- that had depression that did not take medication for it. So, same way, they left it on the market for ninety one, you know, eleven, twenty. It was almost thirty years, and it actually hurt the people that were taking it, the, the people that they were supposed to help, and there's no way they didn't know that. No and way. Then, and then, and the, not to get down the COVID rabbit hole, but we kind of see that now with the vaccines too. Yes. Right? And I, I'm not anti... It's funny, my mama is anti-vax. I'm not <laughs> anti-vax necessarily. Uh-huh. But but you're seeing that with the COVID vaccine too and the fact that it, it's hurt people and there's going to be no remedy, no recourse. Nothing. Nothing will happen and these people are making billions and billions and billions of dollars and that happens... In everybody's community. What's what's amazing about it too is that um, people, the people who were suffering so so deeply from this, are people who did not want to be a part of this, right? They're, so so it was almost like they targeted. Um, poor white communities because, like you stated before, most of these communities are around mills and people were getting injured Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of injury happening. So there's a lot of pain. And they created this mindset that you weren't supposed to be in pain or ever feel pain. 
And that's such a problem. Yeah, right? Because life is full of it. Life is full of it. It doesn't matter if it's emotional. It doesn't matter if it's physical. Life is full of it. And and the thing that I struggle with is mm-hmm. how far, and, and I'm not trying to delve completely into politics, but how yeah. far typically the left mm-hmm. has pushed faith to the side and ridiculed and criticized faith. And mountain people, hillbillies, yeah. rural, white, poor people are very faithful folks, as are black folks, as are yes. Latin folks and or Mexican folks or Spanish speakers. Yep. Whomever. They're all they all have that that common thread that faith is very important to them. And and now we, we push that to the side and yeah. act as if as if it's not important. And I think faith is the fabric that keeps us all all yeah, intact, it's, the it's country the nucleus, intact. It right? is. It's the fabric of the country. Absolutely. I think that faith is um, when you remove God or give people, you remove hope, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So of even if you, even if you, if you're someone who don't necessarily believe in God or, mm-hmm. or spirituality, one thing you can't deny is that people who do typically typically are more optimistic yes. and have hope. One hundred percent. One hundred. You know and. That was another thing. Growing up, we didn't have a bunch, mm-hmm. but we always had that that feeling of being loved in our home, and it was always Christian based. And we always learned and were taught mm-hmm. that you love like Jesus does. Yes, Jesus loves without exception. Right, without exception to everyone, and right. that's the way we were expected to. I was taught that way, and we were expected to behave that way. You treat people like you think Jesus would be treating them. Right. And even if you're not a believer, the the tenets and the foundational principles of Christianity are hard to argue with. Yeah. I mean, be good to people. Be kind. Yes. Love like Jesus does. Even if you don't believe in simple. Jesus. Yeah, it's very simple. And and because that gives hope and because yeah. that builds community. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's so important, and I and it it bothers me mm-hmm. that people's faith, my faith, your faith, yeah, people of every community, every color, every race, every religion, you know, mm-hmm. that their their faith is ridiculed and caricatured, you know, yeah. and, and 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 made you're made to feel lesser or you're made to feel ignorant, and I would say it's the exact opposite. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to end on um, I, I in this interview, even though we can continue so much. Well, oh I gosh. actually want to do like a part two. Because, well, let's do it. We'll do it. Because um, there's there's so many things I want to talk about and so many questions that I have. But, um, but that's a good place to end because I do think that faith is the catalyst to being able to help free some of the minds of these people that are struggling in these uh, societies and being ignored. Um, But another thing I think we can all start by doing as I'm closing is keeping in mind that low income doesn't mean minority. Like, let's just keep that in mind. It seems like in most cases, looking for opportunities for in poor communities, you have to see it as that. Well, I'm one who believes that you can't be a social justice warrior and a classist. Mm -hmm. And I think classism. They don't work together. Yeah. They don't work together. Classism is is our our biggest issue. So, okay. So I'm going to leave you with this advice. What I found regarding these communities um, is that there are a few things that I think we can do to really help So number one, let's start by educating low-income children about social capital and mentorship. 
Let's teach them about soft skills like conflict resolution and financial management. Let's advocate for better family interactions and leadership skills. And for God's sake, please stop categorizing people based off of a few. Learn to understand individuals, not groups. And the idea that privilege leads to fewer opportunities is even more isolating. So a rising tide, which is what I love to say, a rising tide lifts all boats. Amen. We increase one, we increase them all. Amen. All right, everyone. So remember, disagreement is democracy. So if you don't agree with me, it's okay. But now we've talked about it. Now you go talk about it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tug. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone have a great day. Listen each week at thepodcastpark.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and subscribe. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation. Like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.